Welcome to another episode of Behind the Pixel. I'm your host, Joe. I typically write these intros to these episodes and then read them to make sure I sound more polished than I obviously am. I also edit the interview a lot for the same purpose. And I tried not to do that this time because I think it's the best way to introduce Eric, who would want it to feel organic and real. But also, I don't know how to sum up this conversation. This was the first time we spoke to each other, but we have a lot in common. And we hop from one topic to another and have tangential thoughts that are loosely related, but we see the thread throughout our conversation. And I think that's a true sign of friendship when you can keep the thread going and see the bigger picture. You said you're a writer, but I know you as an artist, like a visual artist. So how do you describe yourself to people then? Um, I, I've described myself as a renaissance man because I started my career as a model. I started modeling when I was six years old and um, I like, and I got into acting too uh, when I got a little bit older and I've been in feature films. Um, so I got to act across uh, like Kristen Stewart and hang out with um, Carrie Elways. Jeez. It, it, what movie would I have seen these movies or were these <laughs> indie <no>. movies? <laughs> uh, JT Leroy was the one with Kristen Stewart, uh, which is about the writer. Okay. And um, Carrie Elways and I were in a movie called Teen Lust, which is pretty B movie. But it's got uh, some okay. big names in it. Yeah. Um, so you started acting. Did your parents get in, you into that? or? Um, I mean, if you're six. Well, yeah. My parents, um, it was like the first paycheck I ever got is like $15, which is like a million dollars to to a or yeah to to a six-year-old um i bought nothing but junk and candy with it right. uh, it, it was for a, a catalog like uh, <laughs> and and they didn't invite me back because my, my feet were all crooked because i was six and i didn't know how to model no one had ever <laughs> coached me on this we were like this six-year-old is so unprofessional we can't have him back <laughs> how dare he stand like that uh Man, yeah. that's crazy. Um, I, I, I was I was heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> I had a future in Sears catalogs and LL Bean. I wanted to be in a canoe with Labrador Retrievers. I, I was going nuts in my trailer. I was throwing toys everywhere. It was insane. It was like <laughs> I was, oh, I was playing with my needles and stuff. A little fake heroin. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> what was this catalog for? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Sears. It was just one of those paper catalogs. I was pretty proud of it, though. Six years old. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it was like uh, I went, I was in acting and I, you know, taking a bunch of art classes and growing up and a ton of um, photography classes, too. And, and uh, I went to university. I didn't know what I wanted to do because I wanted to make money. So I majored in business for like first three years. And then I decided to be a writer, (laughs) at which point my whole world collapsed. Well, clearly, if you're going to school uh, because you just want to make money and you're like, well, now I want to be a writer. (laughs) Those two things don't line up currently. I just read um, on or heard on NPR uh, that books sales dropped. 25%, 25%, which isn't a surprising statistic uh, over the course of the last year, but the threshold for what they consider a good opening for a book is 100,000 books. And that's the top 1% of books as a whole, um, which to me is crazy because when, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but we seem to be close in age. Um like in the 90s and stuff, like if you didn't sell like a million copies, it was a dud. And now it's the complete opposite. The book is a side hustle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what made you switch to want to be a writer? 
um, and <clears throat> decide to be um, struggling where you overweight and you wanted to starve yourself like that. that. <laughs> it, it was um, I, actually it, it was kind of a hard, it's kind of a hard story to tell. I, I, uh, I just, like my whole world, just this one year in 2007 just came like crashing down. Um, I've been in school for three years. I didn't, didn't really know what I wanted. Um, I was there kind of for the social experience. I completely switched up as a person just trying on new personas. I was in a fraternity. I was, uh, you know, trying trying on different hats. And then uh, I, I think I drank too much and I was on like, you know, antidepressants and smoking weed and my my toxicity levels hit that point where I became manic and I mm -hmm. kind of saw the future and I was like this like what am I going to do so I went and I, I took a um one of the Myers-Briggs personality tests yep uh, with the career counselor and mm -hmm. um she's like you're a visionary you can be like um like your your top jobs would be like actor uh writer or nurse and I was like <laughs> I actually decided I want to be a director at that point I was like well let's take all of these good things and put them all in a big pile and I want to direct film eventually and let's kick out the nurse portion of it because that's the only one that has a concrete paycheck with it yeah right um uh, my, my dad is a nurse practitioner and he's getting his like his phd he, he's the nurse in the family well that's cool i did the same exact thing um i forget what my uh letters are like it's intg or j or something um i forget what they are but i had the same experience where um I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm working at a law firm and just kind of like working my way up and it's nice, but completely wasting my time. And it's a total um, cultural disconnect between like what I see and what I believe in stuff versus like how they all just focus on dollars and cents. And it's so bizarre. So I took the same exact test. And it was like, all right, so you can be a therapist, a writer, or a preacher. And I was like, okay, so the only thing that has a paycheck is a therapist. I guess I'm going to school for that. Um, but I had the same, I did the opposite of what you did. <laughs> so I kind of like envy you for following that. You know, it's like, it's a hard road. <clears throat> and uh, yeah. Um, so you went to school, you went back to school for, to be a therapist. Yeah. And now I'm here talking to you about oh, okay. writing and stuff. So you I'm actually, uh, yeah, I'm an emotional support teacher. Uh, hey, that's awesome. But my wife, um, had a baby, um, which is who is napping right now. Um, so I stay home with her and that's how I got hooked up with, uh, Sean and Kenny and Dylan and. Now we're here doing this stuff while I watch the baby and she works. So, yeah, it's crazy how things work out. Like, I mean, for for how, you know, for hundreds of years, uh, like professionalism has been so male driven. It's kind of nice to let our wives or our partners take the uh, take the driver's seat and, and, and support them the way that for, for so many years women had supported men. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I don't, I don't feel emasculated at all. I feel empowered by that. Yeah. It's weird how, because of that, um, subduing their nature essentially of being an equal partner, it forced some women to become like drivers and career driven. And now she is she's got her master she teaches at a prep school she makes a lot of money and somehow that switch where you and i became you know emotionally stable after some years uh, of that manic and bipolar that i also relate to <laughs> with at that age um we became secure enough to be like yeah absolutely like i'm fine with staying home but it is still 
strange when I go outside of like this circle of creative people and people that live a little differently. Um, even like women are still not skeptical, but just look at me differently because I'm a stay at home dad. It's strange um, how it's that mindset has bled into the uh, feminine psyche as well, too. We, we could probably go on about like the, the whole system of the situation. But um, <clears throat> what I think it boils down to uh, is I, I read this book recently um, or it was more of a lecture. It's about fixing your energetic, uh, your, your aura. Um, and uh, in, in Western culture, like we are the only like our religions in, in the West are the only ones where, where the man gave birth to the woman. Because the woman has the womb. But for some reason, Adam is giving Eve his rib, which I don't understand where that metaphor comes from. Can you, do you have any idea? I don't know. Um, I'm sure I've read about it. Um, I was uh, raised by very conservative uh, religious parents as well, too. Or I don't know if you were, actually. I didn't. Yeah, I, I was raised. Okay, uh, but you're, <laughs> it's, it's an easy assumption to make. I know, especially since you know that story and like are familiar with it. So uh, I'm sure I read about it at some point. Um, it wasn't until like um, in my 20s I started really diving into like the origins of religion and books and stuff about, you know, Western Christianity focused religions. And I don't know what it is, but there always is that theme throughout the Bible specifically about uh, male dominance. And if we look at it as just, you know, another doctrine for controlling and subduing, you know, women, slaves as well, and different other cultures, it kind of makes sense that that's what we would come up with that, oh, we decided, yeah, we need women we don't explain for what we just know we need them, but we're the ones giving them the gift of life, you know? So it would kind of like align with that. Here's this alpha hierarchy built in from God that you can't question that men are the ones that gave you life, you know? This, this book also um, points to that, like, uh, while we're on the, the topic of religion, how how the, the Western um, ideal of God being outside of ourselves um, and, like, way the fuck out in heaven. Can I curse on here? Uh, fucking yes. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh, has, has attributed to, to um, men being more absent uh, like hmm. the absenteeism of fathers in the home because uh, like the the prayer that we say is my father who who is way the fuck out there you know <laughs> I don't I don't like, know that that's the exact uh, translation of it but I know what you mean <laughs> <laughs> hallowed be thy name yeah um, it, it's God, like uh, if you're out there like fucking somewhere hallowed be thy name <laughs> there, there we go but um yeah, the the um, and uh, another thing, there's three things that that popped out from this lecture series was uh, um, we were the only ones that were kicked out of the garden, <laughs> <laughs> like on the whole planet. <laughs> so is everyone? I don't know enough about um, Hindus or God. What else is out there? or um, Buddhism enough. I mean, I've read Siddhartha and I've read other books like comparing Christianity to those religions and how m there are more similarities than there are differences. Like, there's a good book by, um, what's his first name? It's Wright. I don't think it's Richard Wright, but it might be Robert Wright. And it's called The Evolution of God. And it talks about how um, Islanders and Native Americans, we all came up with this idea of, God and a higher being because that's how um, we explained phenomenas like weather and rain and death and all this other stuff. But I've, I don't know enough 
about like the origins or the subtle differences um, because everything is trying more to bring us together rather than focus on the differences. So I don't know enough about how different we are, you know, as a Western culture, you know? You know, in the last couple of weeks, I've been uh, highly contemplative of this concept of everything that's on the screen or in my dreams or in a book just being a blatant outright lie. Hmm. Um, And, you know, like writers using lies to tell the truth and metaphor, like I I get that and stuff, but um, it's brought me a lot closer to reality. Hmm. Um, What do you mean by like seeing everything on screens or whatever you're reading as a lie? I tried to understand from the position of who's showing me. And then I tried to understand from the position of who's paying those people to show me. Right. And like where they want me. Um, and, and I don't think that it, it's really about that. It's just uh, the construct of our, um, the paradigm uh, of, uh, of, of an imperial culture is mm-hmm. um, deceiving people into doing something that would be good for them anyways. It, it doesn't necessarily justify the deception because then you're like breaking eggs to make an omelet instead of making a vegan omelet, isn't, <laughs> which would have been made with truth. um isn't that kind of just uh or has that been like taught to us that um because that's just the essence of people trying to convince each other that i mean you and i are both trying to convince each other of something even just by conversing you know um Mm. we're trying to convey a persona an idea or an opinion so that could be I don't know if that's a learned thing, um, but I don't know if it's as sinister as those people that are paying you to get that idea out because we kind of like gravitate towards each other that, with similar ideas. Like, let's say this, um, like cryptocurrency in general. Uh, Sean and Kenny found me kind of and saw, I give them, you know, some writing. And they were like, all right, you're good. And they kind of like, let me go with it. And then I find people like you who have similar beliefs and ideas too. So I'm not normally as hopeful, but when someone else is like very skeptical, I somehow become the optimist of the conversation. That's that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) That's the nature of conversation. Right. So, um, so, yeah, but I understand your point that everyone is like pitch. We're all selling something to each other, you know, like I'm trying to sell you as an artist to other people uh, and sell you as a smart <laughs> intellectual <laughs> with your art. You know, uh, Kane Mayfield called me an iconoclast the other day and I had to look it up. <laughs> I was like, OK, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. But um, uh, going back to my career as an artist, like, <laughs> right, that's where we that's where we uh, started. <laughs> After I decided that I wanted to be a writer, um, I, I took a year off from school and I started getting back into my own studies and things that interested me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got into tarot and hmm. I started seeing these amazing coincidences between the cards that I would leave out randomly and the events that would happen in my life. Hmm. And then I started painting the cards and manifesting these events. Hmm. And like, that's like uh, taking fire from, from the gods. It's like lightning in my palm. In fact, the mm-hmm. first time I ever painted uh, a tarot card, like the, there was torrential flooding, an incredible thunderstorm. And um, so that was, uh, that, that got me pretty much hooked on the manifestation process using uh, like subliminating myself, creating the, these alternate mirrors. And so um, like uh, the second metaphor I dug from was uh, all I can say is my life is pretty plain. I like to watch the bottles gather rain. So I like drew a bunch of bottles and then I moved into a party house and we partied all the time. I had all these big parties and there's bottles everywhere. <laughs> and then I, I cleared that painting off of the bottles and it was just an empty desk. And then I moved out. I moved to Austin for a while. Um, so how long have you known Dylan? Is that when you decided 
to team up with him when you moved to Austin? No, I've known Dylan since high school. Like oh, okay. Dylan and I were in academic decathlon together. <laughs> you nerds. We were we were the but rock I stars. Been, I would have been there with you guys. <laughs> we like um <laughs> we were uh like uh roommates uh, when we went on on trips. And uh, we trashed a hotel room once, which is really funny. But, you know, in, in like a high school way with toilet paper, just like right. toilet paper the room. Like, we're going to steal toilet paper off the maid's cart. Uh, we're going to throw our blankets on the floor. You got to make the bed now. Basically. <laughs> so badass. We unplugged the TV. <laughs> <laughs> Suck on that hotel. Hilton. Paris. Plug that Come. shit back in. <laughs> I just uh, added to your workload. <laughs> <laughs> Rebellion. <laughs> Yo, Dylan, we're so punk right now, man. Can you believe it? We just trashed our, we just trashed our first hotel room, man. Uh, we were there was like levels in academic decathlon. There was like the the really the we were the salutatorian of the valedictorian, which you made like straight A's, and then there was mm-hmm. the the B kids. We were the C kids. <laughs> like we were grouped in by grades and we were the kids that uh then how did you weren't. how did you get on it then that doesn't make um, any sense if you they were the rec- kids <laughs> <laughs> they, they recruited us and they're like okay well, well like you know the our teachers the the coaches were really smart they're like well let's, let's look at the high c kids first and then uh, they looked around at us and they could see, you know, I don't know if they looked into our, our reports or like we were smart kids. We just didn't we mm-hmm. weren't focused. We didn't apply ourselves. I don't think we cared so much about grades. Mm-hmm. We, we, more, we cared about uh, being social and, and barely make it in school because public school is dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and now I'm a teacher. So well, this is <laughs> sorry <laughs> at a public school, no less. But you're right. Um, it's it's fucking hard to care about every student and encourage everyone. You kind of, I mean, our public school system is not set up how it should be. I'm teaching summer school right now, and um, there are maybe nine or ten kids in a classroom, and it is so much different and there's actually possibly some learning happening because of how we have it set up um so no it's you're right uh, about school in general it's people that are bored by school and the slow pace are usually smart kids that kind of just we talk to um there's a gifted program we have at the school um and it's kids that have C's and B's and it's because things came so naturally to them as kids um, that when they get to high school, they don't have the good work ethic to go along with what's needed. Um, in, in in elementary in Canada, they would, they would just put me in the library. I just go and do my own thing. Like, <laughs> it was so easy. Really? So like you were that intelligent? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it, like I mean, um, th- there was a few of us There's, um, and we all went on to to do intelligent things. Yeah. So. Go back to the writing thing, then how does that how does that work into like you writing where the, I, the story I have a theory, <laughs> I have a theory as to like why. Um, why more intelligent people gravitate towards writing but i'd rather hear your thoughts on it first um so like my, my story about how i became or why you gravitated towards it beyond just the test because it's obvious that so my theory is that people that like gravitate towards writing and arts and such are usually consumed with an idea or ideas plural that are beyond just I don't know. I don't know what other people worry about or think about, to be honest. But well, I, I started transcribing my dreams, okay, and making storyboards of my dreams first, uh, and they were dramatically different from reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's a mystery. Um, 
and and I consider myself kind of a detective. Um, like Encyclopedia Brown. <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown. Do not <laughs> no. That that might be a little bit before my time. Like I've heard of Encyclopedia <laughs> okay. Brown, but I'm not familiar with okay. um, the the lore. <laughs> It's a big world, a oh, big world building <laughs> in encyclopedia round. Sorry, I keep interrupting. You're having these great thoughts and I'm making a joke about encyclopedia Brown that you don't even understand. Well, encyclopedia, all right. Is encyclopedia Brown a cartoon character or is it actually like the encyclopedia? No, he is just a smart uh, preteen kid who uh, solves mysteries. Oh, um, and that's <laughs> and it was books that I read in the 90s that uh, I thought you would have understood. Fellow kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but continue. You started transcribing. Um, st- I, I transcribed my dreams. I, I was just manic. I, I There was something there was a disconnect there within my tech toxicity that was like causing me to just go along with the flow of Mm -hmm. what everyone else was doing. And I didn't feel like everyone else. My first philosophical question, I was eight years old. I remember asking it was, why am I me and they are them? Hmm. Like that's a, I think it's a pretty heady question for an eight year old. I, yeah, I'd say so. Um, Yeah. And I had similar thoughts like that, especially like at church outgoings like to bring our upbringing back into it. I remember, I don't know how old I was, but I asked like one of those like youth pastors or something um, that I forget what it was. It was just a simple question, but how do we know all of this is true um, when they're, we're talking about the Bible? His response was, um, that's a great question. And I'd love to talk to you about it further, but we got to get going. And I never got a response to that question. And that was, I think, my similar path to like what you said. I do think those ideas are complex. And there's that questioning that people that gravitate towards writing and the arts all have. We're questioning things and we don't fit in. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's not not feeling like I fit in with people with, with this this general populace that was following what everybody else was doing. I felt like I was going to be the maybe the person who's going to be the one that's like telling the people which way to go, or at least giving them a choice between left and right. And <clears throat> like I, when I was painting and, and throwing all these parties, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, I created a magazine called Art Rag, and it, it's uh, I, I republished it, like I redid it, and I put it on my website. It's kind of like Art Rag 2.0, but like it was really, it was hugely community driven, um, and uh, I was writing for it, and I, I was you know throwing fashion shows and you know hanging out with theater kids, so I was getting uh, more like lead roles in uh, theater projects. And, um, it was, it was really, you know, it was an immersive experience with people who are different than uh, with the creators and the writers. And uh, I ended up hating like just how the the magazine looked, which is one of the reasons I wrote happy man and, and and redid, uh, art rag. Um, but, um, between that, like I spent many years, uh, modeling, photographing and and figuring out how to tell a story that people would be interested in i'm still figuring it out i think that is what everyone's trying to figure out but um i had a conversation with a woman a few weeks ago and we were talking about um punk music and how she's older than i am so she like grew up with sex pistols punk and I'm a little bit older than you, so I grew up with pop punk and like Blink-182 and Newfound Glory and that. MXPX, no effects. Oh, shit. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) My (laughs) To uh, give you some insight into how old I am, my first uh, 
AIM messenger screen name was MXPX Joe. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I'm glad I threw that in there. Yeah, that was a perfect. Um, so I was nervous to talk to her because I'm not that old school punk and I don't believe in that a purist mentality of, well, if it's not like original, then it's not uh, true like punk or and with anything. Um, you know, I'm growing up in the 90s and 2000s. So like I want to like read authors and listen to music from my time period that I think should be appreciated. Um, I appreciate all the historical background and what brought us to this point, but I still like want to be immersed in what's happening now. And so anytime I would like talk to someone that like grew up in that era of punk music, I'm always a little bit nervous. But she made the point, she was like, I don't even know what a punk is because I would look at it as I'm kind of like a hippie punk where I just felt like I didn't fit in. And like, that's kind of what being punk actually is. It's a bunch of misfits that don't feel like they belong in mainstream culture where going to football games or uh, being popular or just not having something intellectually stimulating to stay and just being surface, we don't fit in with that. So we all gravitate towards these things. Like with you, it's those theater kids and um, writing art rag. Mine was, you know, the pop punk kids creating music and stuff like that. And I wonder if that is something that you think as well. It's just that idea of not fitting in what is being put out there by like mainstream culture. Well, I, I think, um, and, and I could be wrong, like about the, I'm making up the statistic, but I imagine that about 70% of just uh, imagining the humanity bell curve of intelligence is that we fall towards the, the more intelligent, like the most intelligent being of course the, the like, you know, business moguls, like, uh, you know, Zuckerberg and, and um, Gates and, and Musk and stuff. These guys are the most intelligent people on the planet. But we're skewed towards that side of the bell curve. Most people fall towards uh, relating to each other on, on the basis of intelligence. Be like, oh, we're, we're you know, we, we both watch uh, like cops or something. <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry, but, but I, but I watch cops. It's such an easy thing to get sucked into. It's just, it's just so bizarre, man. It's, it's like I didn't mean to man, insult you, man. It's fine. I, but I know, but I know what you mean. It's lowbrow. It's a guilty pleasure, and it's. I mean. My parents grew up watching it. So. <laughs> it, it, it is it is like watching a Snickers bar on TV. It is. Like, it absolutely is. It's got and peanuts in it, yeah. but it's still a Snickers bar. <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely right. So I understand it. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I hope you're right about that bell curve uh, well, and where we fall on it. Go that's ahead. the nature of universe in like hermetic principles is that... Uh, we're all one, of course, but mm -hmm. um, the nature of universe being uh, dual, dual, you know, night and day, hot and mm -hmm. cold, uh, in hermetic print philosophies. Of course, there, there's more of a. Th we're looking at it from a two dimensional way. It's more. It's more three dimensional. Mm -hmm. There's not just hot and cold. Like there, there's other spectrums, but um, it, on on the z axis. Uh, but like we're we're kind of like you know, smart and not cops watchers smart it's, and cops yeah um, that's it. <laughs> it, it if i'm gonna get political about about cops and in schools um i think that like what what happens a lot in schools is, is has a, a direct it's, it's the disproportional budget of like what we're doing to to arm people mm -hmm. with actual arms instead of arming them with you know words and knowledge know. in general. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree um, with you 100%. And that's kind of how um, I was introduced to you. Um, like I started right when 
Dylan wrote uh, the Behind the Pixel article about you. And so I started following you because I was like following everyone in the group. I didn't know shit about shit then. And um, you followed me back and you liked the thing that was pinned at the top of my uh, Twitter feed. And it was a video of Killer Mike giving that speech when um, there were the riots in Atlanta after George Floyd and there was another uh, killing then too. And he got up there and just killed it. And he's one of my favorites and you liked it. And I was like, all right, Eric and I are going to be friends. <laughs> he, he tweeted back at me because really Killer Mike changed my perspective. Like that song mm -hmm. Reagan, that changed my perspective on like the whole system. I was like, that is that that's one of the most powerful songs I've ever heard. And I tweeted at him saying that this this changed my world. And so he retweeted it and it was really nice. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I would have freaked out if he did that for me. Like he is um I think the first videos I saw of him were him angrily talking to a room of black people. And he's spoken about this and how he talks differently to white people and a room of black people and he was like heated and people were in the audience were furious i don't think it was trayvon it was slightly after that um when i saw it and too many yeah he um was yelling at them because all of them were like well what are we going to do what are we doing like we need to leave we need to like start our own community and do all this other stuff and he's like you know everyone's talking about leaving and uh, we need to remove ourselves from this, but like, can you support yourself? Do you know how to farm? Do you know how to grow things? How are we, are we going to dig wells to like get water? Like none of us are prepared for that. And you guys are, we need to be realistic. And it was just, it, he's a fantastic speaker. Um, and I think his uh, lyricism is secondary to it. Almost. I don't look, he's a fantastic speaker, but that's exactly what I did when I real when, when COVID hit, when, when, um, like George Floyd, I was on tour in the U S and I was like, fuck this. And I moved out to the country. I found a, you know, a, a piece of land that I could pay $40,000 for and have a house and start. And, and there's a well here and there's a river nearby in case you know, shit goes sideways. And like, you know, we do need to start societies outside of the inner city because there's nothing for us in the inner city anymore. There's nothing for us but us being socially predatory. Or social predators, like just eating each other, you know, and, and trying to get cash, like not understanding that that cash is all the things not and, and like, it's like uh, Scroobius Pip, he said, or Dan Lissac versus Scroobius Pip. He's like, guns, bitches, and bling were, were never part of the four elements and never will be. Hmm. And, and these inner city anthems about these rappers just telling lies on the mic because it's fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's what they're fantasizing. And, and when I became a rapper, when, it, when I took, took the mic and I started flowing and I realized what other rappers in the room were flowing about, I'm like, we're just fantasizing. We're writers. We're just fantasizing about what we want. If we were talking about what was really going on, like I woke up, I put some Cheerios in the bowl. I put some milk on the Cheerios. Then I took a big dump. Like that's not what we're rapping about. We're not rapping about reality. We're, we're, we're rapping about fantasies. And like if we're, we get real about it, yes, we do need to go out and we do need to start digging wells and we do need to start building fringe communities uh, in, in places like I'm in Canada where there isn't, there isn't so much pressure in the, from the inner city. Cause I've lived in both and, and I know what it's like and that, that inner city pressure, I can't, no, no, it, it's, it's crumbling. It's like, uh, the degradation goes too fast for the, yeah, for the gradation. Um, so you were at university and you decided to become a writer. Sorry about my tangent. <laughs> oh, um, no, and 
You know, I have got a lot of, like like a, a lot of love from the celebrities on, on Twitter. Um, yeah, uh, I invented a, a style of art called motionism, which is like post impressionism. When I did this like giant installation in Los Angeles, if you have uh, comments on here, we can put like my website and uh, um. It was embraced. It was embraced by the community. I wrote a bunch of letters to because uh, I experienced some some serious racism in the workplace before. Yeah, before like, you know, George Floyd and stuff, and like, I went out. I was like, I'm never working for anyone else again, and I went out to become to be an artist. I went to L.A. Did this huge installation that wrote a bunch of letters to powerful black people and I, I got some some serious serious love on the other side do you want to talk about the instances where you faced the racism stuff or do you want to glaze over it <laughs> it's up to you <laughs> um well you know i think it, it relates a lot uh, i'm gonna try to glaze over it and face it at the same time okay <clears throat> um I, a lot of meme culture um and we don't know who's creating memes because people don't sign memes. We don't know if it, if it's like uh, like if I was in psyops in in you know some some organization that's trying to keep the people in order so they don't go nuts. Like I, I'd be I'd be a memer. Yeah, right. Um, I think it's the best way for for uh, to get an idea going. Especially if you're gonna. Do you know where the word meme comes from? I do, but please remind me. I I read about it in a book on religion, and they were talking about memes back in biblical times, and I was like, "The fuck are you talking about? Like, this is something from 2000." Nope, it's the transfer of knowledge through a like a book or an image so it can be easily digested for someone else. And that's what it is, which is bizarre that it's been around this long and we are talking about it in the form of those stupid memes. Well, the, the, its idea has come. You know? <laughs> this, this is one of those ideas whose time has come. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I won't name names because there was like, I sued this guy for half a million dollars. He sued me for like, I, I sued him. I'm like for 20,000. I'm like, you owe me at least severance. And then he went back and sued me for 50,000. And he's like, you jack some things on the way out of the office. And I sued him for $500,000. I'm like, you're not getting away with this because I had all this evidence and text messages at the end of the day, you know, my, the CEO that I was, I was working with, he's a Jewish guy. He was probably getting the racist shit and just rolling downhill, mm -hmm. you know, and it took me many, many years to understand what he was going through. Yeah. And what we were putting each other through as a result of this is like brothers in arms. And uh, that, that's a hard lesson to learn. But um, the racism started uh, when I moved to Texas. The first time I ever experienced racism was I was in Boy Scouts and I saw the, these, this couple like uh, we were on a camping trip. Um, they were out um, like kids that were just a little bit older than me. They were, they were in like we were in a drainage area or something, something camp related. And I got called a white trash monkey. And I'm like uh, mixed race. So I'm like, that's weird. And then, um, you know, people started telling jokes like in, in junior high, like uh, I, I won't repeat them. I don't want them to be on the air. Um, but like continually like going back into myself and then creating a denial of my own race and then trying as, as a repercussion of that, trying to be as white as possible and then getting the BMW, joining the fraternity um, and uh, seeing firsthand like, um, I, I had a black fraternity brother that I pledged with who almost didn't get in because one of the fraternity guys was like, we're going to let a black guy in here. And, uh, I'm like, 
you guys can't see me. I'm invisible black. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if I, I was mean, a superhero, that would be my name, invisible black. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the white spy. <laughs> what's your super, What's your superpower? I can get into yacht clubs. People see my face. <laughs> the cops don't check my ID. <laughs> you want to go golfing on Tuesday? I got a four o'clock tea time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I did I like looking at you like I wouldn't have known that you were mixed at all. Like so it's uh black people know right away. Really? Really? Wow. That's crazy. And um, um when I di- when I wasn't aware of this, now it's a power because I get pulled over, they don't ask for my ID anymore. Jeez. Like I'm powerful white guy now. <laughs> the cops. <laughs> Do you actually code switch like that? Do you feel yourself doing it? I don't feel myself doing it. I just do it now. And uh, it started when I was microdosing because like uh, I, I was hyper aware of every situation that I was in. And as in my persona, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm dark on it. I'm black. Like I'm an African-American. So when I got pulled over, that was part of my person. And then I realized that there is some code switching going on and uh, it, I would get pulled over. I, like, uh, <clears throat> saying saying it on, you know, in, in public, I'd be drunk. I, I'd be like, I'd be fucked up, and th- I get pulled over, and the cops like looking at the inside of my car because the inside of my car is painted because I'm a rock star artist, um, or or just an artist. <laughs> and uh, you felt the DJ throw the rock star in like, there. I'm a well, cool he dude. was like, "Are you like a professional wrestler or something?" I'm like. I'm definitely like, I don't say it, but I'm like, I'm definitely white like you and you don't need to worry about this. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's crazy. It's, it's so crazy. And so I, I've definitely developed a distaste for the current state of the police force. I understand that the police force is, yeah, man, I think everybody's in this place right now where we're, we're confused about why we're being policed. Yeah, um, I have uh, two of my oldest friends have become police officers and uh, we don't talk as much as we used to. And I've known them for 20 years now. And um, it's kind of a mutual thing, you know, uh, where we don't want to even approach it because I've tried to a few times. Um and it hasn't gone well. They don't understand the – there's always that sentiment of, well, it's just a few bad apples. And John Oliver made this point, so I can't take credit for it. Um, you have to finish that saying. It's a few bad apples poison the barrel. And that's what my concern is for these guys that I've known for as long as I have is that there are assholes out there that, and I teach some of these kids, that don't have a conscious thought in their brains. But they're like, yeah, I'll just become a police officer because all we require is a high school education. And they grow up and they get consumed by that. It's a fraternity. You know? Yep. Absolutely. And, um, they just get that group think going and then something terrible happens. And they all kind of just, eh, well, because it's institutionalized, they're like, well, you got to know the circumstances. And even with the cir- knowing the circumstances, it's still almost impossible to break through to them that part of the reason that I am so focused on this and so passionate about it and where I stand is because I know that you are possibly one of the good ones, despite the fact that you don't see your bias, you don't see your blind There's no such thing because you're right. It poisoned the barrel. Yep. I know. You're right. You're absolutely right. But there's still that, um, you know, I've got that 
it's the relationship between them. You know, I've got the nostalgia for how we used to be and all that other stuff. So I know that's part of it too. But um, I'm, so I'm I can't sure like the Germans did with the Nazis too. Like right, right. I know it's what, what, what happened to Derek. Why doesn't Derek come over anymore? <laughs> uh, he joined this club. <laughs> we just I made, don't see you. You know, I, I made fun of Jewish it. I called friends. it. A, yeah, I made fun of his uniform, and he didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Why don't you talk to Hugo?" <laughs> Which uh, that's a weird thing. Why are Hugo Boss and BMW still in business? Oh my god, those guys like. <laughs> I know they profit. Oh my god, right? We should start a weekly or a bi-weekly <laughs> podcast where we can talk about all these confusing things. Yeah, we could probably do it. Um, like ah. Uh, Dylan has a, a morning crypto show hmm. and uh, like this would could be a catalyst. Like I, I want a, a show that like before it that just talks about art and, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. Things. I was good. Stuff and things, you know, yeah. the stuff and things show. <laughs> that would be a good that would be a good name because obviously like but that's kind of why I don't like I don't have an art background like you so um but I I'm an English teacher and I grew up wanting to be a writer around like senior in high school uh when I had a creative writing teacher say I was good at and I uh was like a runner-up for poet laureate um for the high school kids in my state and so I've had that in me, and I forget where I was going with this. The podcast, <laughs> what this is. Um, so, like, I can talk to like you and the other artists that I have um, on, but I don't have the ability to talk about like the art history and um, high art. I don't have that background or knowledge, but there's an overlap in the fact that they're both humanities and that's all art and writing really is. It's exploring what it is to be a human being. And I think we forget that about English and art in general, or it takes us years to remember it, or maybe we're just losing it in general because people don't read anymore or want to go to art programs and they're being defunded across the country. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know if I can speak so much on that. Uh, I, I think that doing art is, uh, is just being brave and, you know, we create, our, our path in front of us. Like, you know, I, I studied like art history for a really long time. I didn't get um, into it so much in university. Like I took classes, like, you know, a, a year of art history classes. Or did I just show up in the first, I don't even know. Uh, like I've read a bunch of books about it. Um, but like the, the style that I created was based on the physical principle that everything is constantly in motion. And stillness is absolutely impossible. Like it is a, uh, unless you're in the depths of a black hole and even then you're moving really, really slow. Like, um, so, so it's visual poetry. And then I, I really liked, uh, um, optical illusions. And, uh, I like this, uh, this concept of creating depth. So when I, I, I do oil paintings, like, uh, or paintings that that'll take a couple of years, you know, I'll do a layer of, uh, of, clear coat and then I'll paint over that and leave areas of the clear coat so you can, it's like looking through layers of a window in the depth um like f- firsthand my oil paintings are they've become pretty spectacular and that, that's why uh, like um in 2018 I, I got word that my secondary market in LA had reached like 200 250,000 per, per piece and so I'm charging about a $20 square inch now um that's crazy man yeah it kind of 
blew my head up. Like my ego got really big for a while. <laughs> and, and, and then I then I took eight months being homeless. Not, not being homeless, just driving around for a while to get some perspective. Um, Was it that by choice? Well, um, <laughs> so I figured out a way to sell art, which is just go and knock on people's doors. <laughs> hey, I'm an artist. I'm selling art. And they buy it. And then I got into prints. I got into digital. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm like printing money. Mm-hmm. This is insane. Like, um, so I just go to people's doors. And I'm like, hey, I, I got I got money. You want to trade paper? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and that was that was paying the bills. Um, And and, uh, I had uh, experience in professional sales for a really long time. And so I was applying it to art and um, building. I've been building my business like that. Just Hmm. like to be a sales to to be successful in sales or or in business. All you got to do is have a product and be able to sell it. It's true. Uh, there is a lot to art that is sales focused and pitching it, which I don't like. And I'm having trouble accepting the fact that money makes the world go around. And I try to philosophize the money aspect of it. Like, hey, I've got this paper that is valuable. Let's make a trade is how I try to like look at it. It's validation for you as an artist to that I give you my paper that I worked for and it's, you know, allowing you to eat and have a roof over your head so you don't have to sell your soul and go corporate, you know, and that's how I try to look at it. But it's still it still boils down to sales and pitching something to someone, unfortunately. Um, I, I under, from what I understood is that like, uh, when you're a real artist, like the, it comes to you and, and there's a couple of reasons for this is because the validation process of creating, um, the books, which is what the blockchain represents. Mm-hmm. So now I have a book that like I create a certificate of authenticity and I stamp that with a number and I put that number in a book and I put the, the same number on the certificate with the painting. So like once something is finished, that's usually when it sells. Hmm. the same and, and uh, I've seen it just happen so magical just just completely magical uh, when, when all of my my energy channels are clear so there's no you know pile of shit at the door there's no like um, the the purest way that I saw it I was homeless in Toronto for seven weeks because after graduating I needed to figure out what money meant to me hmm. and this, this path led on to uh, currently, like just to understanding exactly what money is. And when I was in Toronto, I would finish uh, a drawing of, of a, a garment and I'd meet the person that the garment was made for. They would, co- they would t- come and talk to me in this fantastic law of attraction, perfectly synchronous environment. There's a convolution that happens when we start a thousand projects and we don't finish any of them. But once we start finish, finishing projects, they start coming to a head. So the goal is to just finish it. And for me, finishing the, uh, the garments, or finishing the, the drawings of the design, putting a white line around them. Just outlining it, putting it on a piece of paper, and then putting a white line on it. And uh, later that become, became cutting it out and using it as a business card. So when I was on uh, set with uh, Carrie Elwes, like my business card for that set was uh, a, a like a space yacht, um, because any group art project uh, can be uh, summed up in that we're we're on a ship, we're working together, and and we're making the ship move. And it, there's like what I'm what I'm telling you is like I've, I've just seen that some things are just nothing short of miraculous in in finishing the art project. So if you're working on a novel and you finish that novel, like there's something's going to happen with it. Yeah, it's um, it's the fear of nothing happening with it. You know what I mean? And that's and what bravery. I, 
Yeah. Bravery is what, what the reason we're doing it. But how many times have you been so close to getting it and you sabotage yourself or something happened right before the end of it that was like, damn it, now it's, now it's all ruined. If you can push through on that last part, you're going to be a successful artist or a novelist. Well, now we've switched roles and now you're the optimist in this conversation. <laughs> I'm a realist. <laughs> I used to be an idealist and an optimist and then, and then, uh, then, then the world spoke. I let the world speak. Start, start small, yeah. scale up, and then all this shit just sells itself. Huh. That's interesting. That, that's the state of a perfect market. And I, I hope that as, as people were moving towards something similar to that, if we, we can spread this sort of information. I hope so. Shit. Finish your shit. <laughs> Finish your shit before you wipe your ass. And you get to, you know, clean up. I'd like to thank my guests for taking the time to speak with me. And if you liked what you heard, like, subscribe, and share it. Thanks for listening.